This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 617 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Kevin Atlas. Now, I was actually introduced to Kevin's work by my young son, who, whilst in middle school, watched Believe in You, a program Kevin put together to address mental health in our schools. So we discuss a host of topics, from being born with one arm, his parents' philosophy, losing his father at a young age, his journey into basketball, his own spiritual and mental health journey, and the incredible things he's doing with our youth today. Now, I do want to point out there was a slight audio glitch in the microphone, so you'll hear the audio kind of goes from really, really good to poor for a moment and then back. I don't think it's distracting, but I just want to make sure that you know that was the recording and not your stereo. So before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating this show gets elevates it, therefore making it easier for other people to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Kevin Atlas. Enjoy. Kevin, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. The reason I learned about you was actually from my son, who I think was about 12 at the time, and came back raving about this uh, speaker that he'd, he'd seen on YouTube in one of his classes in middle school. And he's like, he's a basketball player. He's only got one arm. He's inspirational and was telling me all these stories about you. So he told me about you. I found you on social media, reached out, and here we are. So thank you so much for coming on. Hey, are you kidding me? Thanks for having me. And that makes me feel really good, man. Yeah, tell your son I, I said hi. We'll have to meet, meet up someday. Absolutely. So, very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in California. I, uh, full circle, I moved back. So, I'm in between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe, California. Brilliant. So, I like to start at the very beginning chronologically. So, tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Heck yeah. So I was born in San Jose, California and, uh, you know, born and raised in Pleasanton, uh, which is East Bay, which is a really cool community. John Madden lived in town, et cetera. Uh, Two awesome parents that really, you know, couldn't get along at a young age. And so they divorced when I was young uh, and then two older siblings. It's really, really cool family dynamic. But unfortunately, we were born, you know, the poor poor-ish family in a really rich and wealthy community. Um, and, you know, having a split custody kind of made things a little bit challenging growing up as well. But, you know, I was definitely blessed to have, you know, the, the family I was born into. They're great people. Beautiful. So what did your mom and dad do? My mom uh, did kind of two jobs, but she was in management. Uh, my dad was an electrician, but the guy was almost like an engineer, right? He's 6'9", 300-pound dude, but 
uh, you know, back when they had the yellow pages in the day, I remember doing this. This is crazy. Someone mis like printed the number to like a spa fixing company into our number. It was one digit off. So he'd pick up the phone and, and he'd be like, Hey, that's not me, but I'll come fix your spa. Like he could do anything. Like he, he was Mr. Fix it up. Uh, you, his life motto was anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And that guy, he lived it every day. He was just uh, such a handsy man. Uh, you know, being his height, uh, he was a pro race car driver before I was born. He raced uh, Camaros on the dirt track. So I don't know if you ever saw the movie Talladega Nights with like Will Ferrell. Oh, yes. Uh, I, it's very similar. I, when I saw that movie, I was dying in laughter because the story goes, he was in the pit crew for Ken Morgan. Ken Morgan had quote unquote bad sushi, meaning that he was probably hungover. And that's the G-rated way of telling the story. Uh, but they drew straws, the pit to drive the car. And, and my dad pulled it and they're like, there's no way you can fit you know, he's six, nine, right. And a Camaro, like old school Camaro. And he's like, watch me. And he gets in the car and he gets first place. Um, so Ken gives him the car and uses his backup car and they register him and they become best friends. Ken became my godfather and they raced together, which was wild. Cause like when I was watching that movie, I was like, what the heck is happening? This is uh, it was so funny, but yeah, he, he, he raced for a long time. Uh, really awesome dude. That's incredible. Yeah. When you think of that height, you do not think of someone, you know, who would squeeze into a race car. Definitely. <laughs> so with the whole kind of chronological walkthrough, obviously your birth is probably a good place to start because that kind of contributed to your entire kind of journey on forward. So sure. talk to me about your pregnancy. It's a weird question, but you know, the, the, the kind of um, birthing story, I guess. Yeah, it was wild. Um, so I was born with one arm. My uh, left hand is is cut off between the, uh, the elbow. So I have about six inches under the elbow. I call my nub. It's pretty awesome. But what happened, my umbilical cord wrapped around my neck and my arm got caught in between the umbilical cord and my neck, essentially took my arm off, saved my neck, saved my life, which I think is a blessing in disguise now that I'm older. Uh, I was ironically born on Friday the 13th and Good Friday with one arm, so like joking, God has jokes and stuff. I'm supposed to be left-handed too, which is messed up. Uh, but, you know, honestly, I, I don't know any different. So uh, I think one of the most remarkable things about human beings is our ability to adapt. I think adaptation is like homo sapiens, like one of their most valuable skill traits. And because I was born with one arm, I, I'm able to do things that people can't quite comprehend. Uh, but also I had to self-teach myself a lot, meaning that I'm, as an adult, very adaptive to different situations and, and able to pick up new skills very quickly, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, you know, when I spoke to youth, when I speak to like middle schools and, and elementary schools as like a motivational speaker, which I don't do oftenly uh, in those age ranges, I'll get a $100 bill and I'll pick a couple people out of the crowd, I'll put it down and I'll give it to them if they can tie their shoes faster than me which is, is wild, but just, you know, supporting a message, I, I tell them. And, you know, I've only lost once. There was this little like second grade girl who just, I don't know how she did it, but she redeemed <laughs> me. She took that a hundred bucks and gave it to the principal. So somebody can beat her up after, after it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a crazy way to be born. If, if you can imagine and empathize, just being like the only one-armed guy outside of Captain Hook that you know, uh, was definitely a challenge. Brilliant. So you were born, obviously, with, with this one limb. Um, you know, I've had several people on here that, um, you know, were congenital amputees or lost limbs at birth. And a resounding kind of common denominator was an element of parenting 
that didn't look as their child as disabled that that found you know encouraged them to find ways around their disability um or you know the 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 differences anatomically with other children so what were what was kind of like that journey obviously i know you lost your father early on but at those first few years with your parents what did they look like as far as that element yeah i mean that yeah, it's a very fair point and i think that's just really good parenting tough love is still love and i think people have lost sight of that uh, I had these Velcro shoes. They were Spider-Man shoes when they lit up when you walked. And as a little kid, they were the coolest thing ever. My mom, right in front of me, threw them away. And she did it in front of me, not behind my back. And she's like, you need to learn to tie your shoes. I was in second grade. And I threw the biggest fit. I don't think I talked to her for a week. Uh, I was so angry. Uh, where I went in the silent, stubborn, redheaded mode. If you know a redhead, you know what I'm talking about. But uh, my mom did it out of love. And then she bribed me, of course, uh, she was going to take me to Chuck E. Cheese with any, any, a friend of my choosing if I learned how to tie my shoes. And then it took me 48 hours to figure it out. Uh, but it, it, it was, it was constantly that it was suck it up, buttercup. It was not, you know, something I'm blessed. I'm really am blessed that my parents figured out a way to find the balance of, you know, pushing me to be able to do everything else, especially in that day and age when you don't have YouTube, you know, I was born in 1990. So there wasn't like, Hey, this is how you do it. It was just like, we got to figure this out. And so both my parents had different ways of doing it. My dad kind of pushed me uh, to be stronger and to have a little bit of grit, et cetera. Um, But I, I did throw fits a lot. I got frustrated very easily because I found certain things very difficult. And it was a great way at a young age to realize it wasn't that I, I can't, it's a mindset thing. So, you know, I could throw the biggest fit in the world, but then we'd figure it out afterward. And over time, what you're doing is you're slowly realizing that like everything's, you're capable of doing everything. It's just having that open mindset to like figure it out and find the joy in that process of kind of dissecting certain situations and, and kind of figuring out a, how to adapt towards them to make yourself successful doing them. Now, at what point did you find yourself introduced to basketball specifically? And outside of a basketball court in like recess, I didn't start playing basketball till middle school. Uh, in seventh grade, I was 6'4", at about, you know, 13, 12, 13 years old. So I was a giant creature, man. And uh, I went to Pleasanton Middle School. My middle school is literally called PMS, which is a solid name for a middle school. School colors are red, too, which they didn't think that through at all. But I, uh, I went to try out for the school team and, you know, at the First day of tryouts, I got pulled aside by a coach and he essentially, you know, he got me from the team. He explained to me in front of everybody that basketball is a two-arm sport, try something else. And for me, you know, I was like, dude, I don't want to play for PMS anyway, you jerk. Uh, but I never, you know, played basketball since I was four years old. Like most pro athletes, you know, it was kind of all his life. I'd just been introduced to it at a, a little bit of later of an age. I never really played that organized basketball. Uh, so for t- to me, it was just another, like, you can't do something. Uh, which made me want to do it all the more. I think that stubbornness, again, of being a redhead uh, made me want to kind of engage in basketball now more so because I was told that I couldn't do it. And I'm no longer a believer of that because that had been instilled in me from my parents all through growing up. So you you found basketball when you were a little bit older then. So what sports were you playing um, kind of elementary school that age? I was a you know soccer guy. I was terrible at it but I had a real strong leg. So if it came anywhere near me, I was kicking it to the other side of the field. Uh, but it was so massive, man. I was 5'10 as a fifth grader. So like you can imagine my height and weight was just absolutely absurd. I was like 210 pounds, or not 210, like 120. 
Uh, so I played football, like tackle football, just offensive, defensive line, and not much skill involved for me. I didn't have to. I just kind of laid on all these other kids, and they all fell over. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, I played baseball. Jim Abbott, who threw a no-hitter for the Yankees, uh, became my childhood hero, who I later met in life and was a big fan of mine. Rolls reverse, and he mentored me, which is great. Uh, but he was a one-armed pitcher for the Yankees and the Angels. And uh, that guy was, you know, a huge inspiration for me. So I dove into to baseball, which was a sport that I loved. I wasn't the greatest at it. So in the documentary, obviously, we see there was an element of you perceiving that your father was very hard on you. So what? how did that play out? Was that through the sports or was it something else? You know, I, th- I think that my, my dad... I, you know, and things are produced certain, certainly differently, uh, you know, based on director's vision and producer's visions. But, you know, the honest truth is my, my dad had a very loving side of him. He was one of those guys who, you know, just loved to go out and adventure and do awesome things. So I've had so many awesome experiences with him. Uh, but, yeah, he had that side of him that was, you know, you, you need to toughen up you know, the world's hard. And I think that was enhanced when he was diagnosed with cancer. When I was in third grade, my father, you know, had to break the news that, you know, he had cancer, um, which progressively got worse. And when I was in fifth grade, he, he passed away from melanoma. Uh, so I think that there was this uh, readiness that he was trying to mold me into, forge a character that would be able to get through with life. I mean, could you imagine leaving your, you know, your 10 year old son, you know, at 42 and dying and like you're, especially with one arm um, and not really being able to be there for them. That must've been very challenging for him. And as I grow older and learn to empathize, um, I can only imagine how, you know, I would do things differently. And I, don't, I can't say I'd do a single thing differently than he did. He did a phenomenal job uh, teaching me a little bit of grit and hardship because the next chapter of my life was going to be a challenging one especially without him there to support me. Um, so I, you know, at the time you don't really realize, Hey, thank you for being so much harder on me. Uh, but I, as you grow up, you realize, man, dude, like, I don't know how it would have gotten through it all without, you know, the, the lessons and those, those seeds that he planted, uh, those, those little wisdom yokes, or if you will, that he, he instilled in me to allow me to, to, to persevere. Yeah, that's something you don't really think about. When when you've been told you've got X amount of time to live, you are probably trying to compress what might be years into a very, very short time. Yeah. And, and you know, it's affected me psychologically a little differently than my siblings. Uh, I, you know, with him passing away when I was so young, I created what I call the book of life. A book of life is interesting. So like the book of life is essentially just a bucket list, but I don't understand why people are waiting till they die to live. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, conceptually, as a kid, I don't understand, like, oh, let's go do all these cool things with whatever time you have while you're sick and dying. It's like, why don't you just do, like, a thing or two every year? So, as a kid, I created a book, and it's a journal, and I wrote, like, 100 lines. I still have it, the same journal, um, and I always add to it. But it was like, what things do you want to do before you die? And then every year, I kind of knock some out. My 18th birthday, I went skydiving. It cost 140 bucks, and I'll never forget it. 2017, you know, pick a year. I'll tell you what I did. Like 2017, I scuba dived the Great Barrier Reef. And the guy who trained me to scuba dive so I could go to Australia to scuba dive the Great Barrier Reef owned a scuba shop. And he said that was his dream. And it was like, dude, how do you own a scuba shop and never do it? And that, that's the point. Like years start to blend in together if you don't make time just a day. I mean, you have a birthday every year. You have literally an excuse to go out and do something, cross it off your bucket list. Uh, so I, I've done that. And because of that, 
uh, because of how I've reacted to my dad passing away so young, my life has been extraordinary with the management experience. I've been very blessed uh, to do incredible things. I've been to 49 U.S. states at 32 in every continent but Antarctica, which is awesome. I mean, I travel the world and I've been able to uh, essentially help so many people, but also just gain so much wisdom, knowledge, experience. Um, and that, that I hope you can take with you. But money, you can't, and everything else, the time is a blur. How you spend it, you know, that's up to you. That reminds me of, I think it's an Anne Frank saying, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's something like um, the dead get more flowers than the living because grief is more powerful than gratitude. I think it's something like that. And it's it's so true. I mean, I've I've actually, I've dove the barrier reef. I've skydived over uh, New Zealand. (laughs) So I can totally empathy. So, but yeah, I mean, that's just it. It's so easy to get stuck in the grind of day-to-day life. And you, you sometimes have to take a step back and go, why? Why am I earning? I'm earning to, you know, obviously feed and, and put a roof over my family's head, but it's also experiences. And if you never, ever take a step back, and yes, it's going to be expensive. And yes, you know, you might have to put some money on a card or whatever, but God forbid you get a terminal diagnosis, you get hit by a car. If you'd only ever worked and then watched football on the weekend, you you know, the, the death, the, the one thing I hear reported from, from hospice friends of mine, like doctors and nurses, is regret is the worst thing. People that have done a lot in their lives, they're usually at peace at the end of their journey. That's awesome. I love that. But that's 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 just it. I mean, we get so busy and caught up in our lives and our routines and our habits and the time we burn just on our cell phones, on social media, et cetera, when we can just like, just take a step back and say, hey, man, I want to pick somebody special with me and create a cool experience with them. You just do that once a year, and then your years don't blur in, you know, blur together. So I think I think that's pretty cool. But, you know, it's just how I reacted to something that was unfortunate, like making the best out of something hard. And, and, and empathetically, I know a lot of people out there, you know, almost everybody's lost somebody that they love. Uh, one thing that I, you know, have found a little bit later in life is if you focus on the things out of your control, your life's pretty much miserable. CNN, Fox News, et cetera. I don't watch it um, because it's a bunch of negativity that is out of my control. It's not that I don't want to be informed, but it's like church of negativity. Like I don't want to open up that into my boat in my life and sink my ship. Uh, so focusing on what's out of your control, like I choose to be born with one arm or in a broken household or my dad passed away, but how I react to it is is in my control completely uh you know if i had died empathetically and i was in a better place whatever you believe in i respect it and i looked down at my father who little boy died at 10 years old and he became an alcoholic and depressed etc i'd still want him to have a happy life so what do you think my father wants for me and so how i react to him passing is i make him proud every day anything worth doing is worth overdoing that was his motto so if i go to like speak at a company or a school I'll speak and then I'll stay and do a leadership like consulting or, or seminar for them. And I'll talk to kids one-on-one or, uh, you know, individuals who are struggling, uh, whether it be a, you know, a CEO of a company or a principal of a high school, et cetera, all the way down to whoever, uh, because going there was worth doing, staying there was worth overdoing. And I make them proud every day. So I think 10% of your life is what happens to you. 90% is how you react to it. So if you, you learn to just, control your focus under what's in your control, your life all of a sudden becomes in your control. And then it's not so anxious and depressing because you're just spinning through this like chaotic, you know, life of, of just variables that are just destroying you. 
um, and letting all this negativity and you can just decide, you know, to have a different sense of focus and mentality and just choose to be happy and choose to constantly progress as a human being, which I think is really special way to live. Absolutely. So you lose your your dad at 10. Um, You don't find basketball till 15. So around that high school age, what were you dreaming of becoming career-wise? Man, dude, if you asked me as a little kid what I wanted to be, I'd have said uh, T-Rex because I was all there in the head. I know you couldn't be that. Uh, You know, I I didn't really have uh, like a dream, a goal, a career path. Um, You know, my life was shaking a little bit when my dad passed and I just didn't really have that kind of sense of focus. And I think that uh, the education system does a poor job, at least in America, with making you so achievement oriented. I feel I never really bought into that. Life's not a trophy. You know, your happiness isn't a diploma. Uh, and I, I never really just saw that as something that like I needed to be better than other people or have this like sense of ego of achievement, et cetera. Um, so I, I didn't really know, um, nor did I think about it a lot, which is scary that I became as successful as I become of uh, just kind of kind of just going with the flow and floating. Uh, but I, I also think that's a little bit of a blessing. I think that anxiety, stress often become future tense and you're so worried about the future as it's uncertain. Repression and anger are two ways to deal with a similar emotion, but they're all past tense. We've all won arguments in the shower that happened two years ago, right? Uh, so we have these, this, this live in your head, you know, systematic approach to living that's just kind of naturally ingrained into our DNA. And, uh, you know, they call the present the present because it's a gift. And, and, and I've done a lot of things where I needed to grow and learn as we all did. And you can't go back. You can only go forward. So I'm not perfect in any way. And had I gone back to middle high school, I would have done things different. However, I am happy of how I lived in the present oftenly um, at that age. And is, you know, I didn't focus on this goal or dream or expectation as much um, until basketball became my focus. My, my true goal and the reason it became that was because I had a sense of belonging. I think kids are oftenly judgmental, uh, which is tough. And I think bullying is even grown to be worse because of cyber bullying. People take it home too, but you know, all these kids want to be the same because they don't want to be judged, ridiculed, et cetera. You know, I'm 6'11 right now, but man, I was 6'8 going into high school and I got one arm and red hair. I looked like Ronald McDonald. Like it was ridiculous, dude. Like you saw the documentary. It was crazy. Like braces, like this goon. Uh, And then when I stepped on a basketball court, people started to respect me. So basketball became that niche, became that dream because it was the place that I finally felt I had the sense of purpose. And and I threw it all into that sport, uh, which, which helped quite a bit. Now, in the documentary, uh, it features uh, Coach Patrick McKnight, and it kind of resonated with me there, and, and, and maybe I'm completely wrong, that when you lose a, a parent, obviously, you know, depending on which gender that parent is, you, you lose a mentor of a male or a female. Was there any element of some of the figures in basketball also acting as mentors and, and pulling you through that journey? Absolutely. Uh, when I first started you know, playing, I, I really did not fit uh ultimately because i was on this aau team so patrick knight's this character who is like a, a coach and a teacher and he's in a neighboring town and uh he hears about me through the grapevine like not being able to make my seventh grade team he has me come try it for his aau team and he had some phenomenal basketball players on the team uh like mostly like junior seniors in high school etc like they were a pretty dominant team so i'm a seventh grade one-armed kid who's never really played organized basketball not like seriously and uh, but he had me come try for this team. And 
obviously that was hard at first. Uh, you know, I didn't get off the the bench, et cetera, but I learned and I grew because I was playing with higher level of competition. Uh, and the days that I wanted to quit and just didn't think it was for me, that was the guy who, who just, man, challenged me so hard uh, to not only stick with it, but gave me so much wisdom, of just unbelievable. Like just, you, you couldn't ask for a better guy to just step in as a coach in your life, especially when you're going through all this, this growth and this changes, uh, but to have somebody push you further than you think you could go. I mean, that's a special coach. The, the, the teachers and the coaches that like cared too much are the ones that I credit all my success to. Like they just went over and beyond what they had to do. And I think when a coach stops coaching you, that's when like you're done. Like they gave up on you. This guy would like, because I had one arm, he was harder on me. And that's exactly what I needed. Um, like uh, somebody to look at this instead of like, oh, I got to coach the one arm guy or this guy's great, but I don't know how to make him better. Instead, this is an awesome opportunity for me. What a cool opportunity it is to like be able to coach like a one arm basketball player. That's never been done. That's crazy. So just to have that perspective and that caring and that heart, um, I'll never be able to fully repay that man because of what he, he did for me. So with sadly the, the the one of the few good things that came out of the Iraq and the Afghanistan conflict was a lot of progression in the adaptive athlete world whether it's prosthetics whether it's just simply working out how to move around you know uh, amputations what was some of the the kind of aha moments that you had as a basketball player being able to use the the, the body that you were given in your favor yeah, I mean, I was I was blessed in a couple different ways. So I think being left-footed, uh, you know, left-handed, et cetera, helped me with natural coordination on that side. I think that, uh, you know, being a, a big man with one giant hand, that's just this freak strength, this overpowering nature, that all you can't teach. You can't teach 6'11", but the nub is the ultimate weapon. This thing is crazy because there's nothing in the rule book against nubbing people. It's all bone. And it's actually strong. So in wrestling, they call it stubs and nubs, uh, where the closer you are to your body, the stronger you are. Like uh, Mike Tyson is like the knockout king. He has super tight. He's like a T-Rex. The guy's arms are super short. So it's his whole body going into it, not just his like arm, right? When he hits, it's like all very close and powerful. This thing, because of its length, uh, I have a very short wingspan, probably the shortest wingspan of any seven footer out there. But it's insanely powerful. Like, I could think of a 300-pound guy who can't pull it down. And it's freakishly fast. And I'm like the world's dirtiest basketball player. This was taught to me from Pat McKnight. There's nothing in the rule book against nubbing people, you know, because they've never been a player with one arm. So I became the world's dirtiest basketball player. I would shank guys with this arm just, like, nonstop. And I will be very honest. I have cracked some rib cages. I've broken a few noses. And guys get really ticked off and they try to fight me. And the refs are like, why are you trying to fight the one-arm guy? What's wrong with you? <laughs> no, man, it was my little secret weapon. And uh, and and ultimately, the the gift that was given to me in basketball made my the whole perspective of this arm, which, uh, you know, was everything I hated about my, my crappy life. It was like this arm. Like, I could hide my other insecurities, et cetera. But this arm, I could not hide. And all of a sudden, I can embrace it through the game of basketball. It made my greatest weakness my greatest strength. And, and, and it turned into a blessing in disguise. And I often say this, especially to the youth, if you can't love yourself, then how the heck is anyone in the world supposed to be able to? Like self-love is so overshadowed. Like we talk about mental health, but let's talk about like being able to look in the mirror and say, I love you. 
Like that's insane. Like we all, I, I have ADHD. I have dyslexia. I did speech deficiency. I couldn't say LZRs to middle school. I was like the stupidest kid in town. I couldn't pass it. I got my first A in eighth grade because I took home ec and they tried, they had a solo pillow. You ever see a one-arm guy solo pillow? It didn't work well. And the teacher felt bad. So I got an A. I was pretty solid, but like, I was not an academic scholar growing up. Uh, you know, it, it was the same. It was like, you have to learn to just embrace these weaknesses and not look at them as disabilities. Cause if you look at it as a different disability, that's exactly what it's going to become. Or is it an opportunity to like absolutely hack life? Like I've opened up the door for other players with one arm to play basketball because of what I've accomplished and what I've done. I've blown the minds of so many individuals, including my basketball hero, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I went to an event with him, all-time leading scorer of the NBA, master of the hook shot, which Coach McKnight and every coach I ever had taught me the hook shot. You get your giant one-arm guy, put the nub in their face, do a hook shot. Right? I got to do an event. I sat at the table with this guy, hung out with him all night. I was so excited to meet Kareem. And then he came back after this event came up to me. He, he had his, he, this is what he told me, Kevin, sorry, man, I left. I had my driver circle the block and I came back up because I can't go home not knowing how did you do it? How did you do it? How did you play ball with one arm? And I looked at him and I smiled and I gave him a nub, but I gave him a nub as hard as I could, which I probably should have chilled out. Um, he went, oh my, like I really heard him. He went, oh my God. And they were like, everyone froze at this like really <laughs> crazy party, right? And he, he's like, um, and I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss on your part you podcast. Oh, yeah. Well, this is his quote. He said, he looked at me and everyone's staring now like the waiters are like holding plates, like looking over like I just assaulted this man. And he looks at me. and He's like, the hook shot's got nothing on that fucking thing, man. You keep it up. You keep nubbing people. I, was like, <laughs> I, I just changed the perspective of the all time leading scorer of basketball. He couldn't even he couldn't even perceive how I played with one arm and how cool and how full circle is that like that? That's like such a. A tremendous blessing, but that's, that's ultimately it's self-love. If you can't love you, how is anyone in the world supposed to be able to? And uh, this is Michael Phelps thing uh, who taught it, you know, to me is you suffer from depression. He does positive affirmations. When he walks through a doorway, he gives himself a silent compliment. Now, of course I'm 6'11". I tried to do that. And I started hitting my head on everything. So I do it when I brush my teeth, you give yourself a positive affirmation. And it feels weird at first and it feels weird for a long time. But what you're doing is you're training your chemical like unbalance. You're training your mind. You're rewiring it to love yourself because you're never spend more time with anybody in the world than you. That's a fact. And if that little voice in the back of your head's mean, guess what? Your life's going to suck. It's going to suck. It's going to be awful. You're going to be mean to yourself. And that negative energy is going to spread to everyone around you. And guess what you're going to get in return? If I was weird about this arm, Everybody else would too. I love this arm. If you gave me a left arm today, and I don't mean a prosthetic, but if I could just have two arms, I wouldn't take it. I literally wouldn't take it. And 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 that that level of self love, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. But you can train your mind to just embrace your weaknesses, and they become massive strengths. There are seven billion people on the planet. There's one you. You're a piece of art. You're a Picasso, and you should never have to apologize for it. But the sooner you can own that, love yourself, your life's going to be instantly. That state of happiness is going to be often. It's going to be awesome. That's such an amazing story. Firstly, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I'm a big martial artist, so I remember him more from Game of Death. But uh, obviously, oh. he wasn't able to defend the nub, so he didn't learn much, did he? <laughs> oh. But what's also interesting, I had a guy, a Kyle Maynard on, who is a quadruple congenital amputee, um, and he wrestled. And when it first started, they were, they were, you know, tapping him left, right, and center, or pinning him, should I say. And then as he started developing, using his limbs in his advantage, 
people would start complaining, oh, it wasn't fair. Because, yeah, for example, like he was heavier without his limbs, so he got to fight at a, a different, you know, weight class and be stronger in that weight class. And so yeah. it went from, you know, it being a disability to it being an ability, a superpower. And that's, that's what's so great to see with, with this whole adaptive community now is rather than, rather than have pity, which no one wants, and rather than make excuses, which no one wants, now you're able to literally turn, for example, like Blade Leaper, you've got prostheses on both both feet, and you're one of the fastest humans on the planet. So it's amazing it's to hear all these stories. Yeah, it's just, it's absolutely incredible. But that that's that's the significance of being able to adapt. And, and you know, that's one of the very special traits of, uh, you know, of humans that I, I'd be surprised if AI could ever, you know, never replicate i think that it's beautiful the growth of a human being from birth to death is a beautiful beautiful thing and uh putting yourself outside of your comfort zone to allow yourself to grow because you don't grow in your comfort zone learn to adapt learn to take on two things and how you react to failure um you fall in love with that process then you become pretty much unlimited on anything that you want to do or accomplish in your lifetime Uh, so just understanding that like wired in your brain and in your DNA is that ability to adapt uh, for those who weren't born with one arm or, you know, the, the one leg, et cetera, and you lost it, maybe be, you know, in war, uh, it might be a little bit harder. It might be newer to you because you aren't a little kid who are geniuses. Kids are geniuses. And I never knew any different. So the adaptation came a little easier Now you knew one way and now you have to learn another. That said, what an awesome opportunity that is. Like, that's so sick. One, because of gratitude. I mean, we all take everything for advantage until we have it or for granted until we have, like we lose it, right? So like now, like, I'm sorry, this is going to sound freaking absurd. Like I'm a crazy man because I am. I'm a, I'm Captain Hook, man. Every time I get another person with a nub, I'm like, let's make a pirate army, get some hooks. Better, <laughs> man. I love it. But it, it, it might be challenging at first, but what a crazy opportunity. One, you get to, you know, really have that gratitude for what you had and, and experience that even through loss. I mean, wow. Love. Gratitude is really that key to happiness and, and for you to be able to understand the, uh, the journey of adaptation in a different way and how you're still writing your story and how you can turn around and do some remarkable things and inspire others going through that same struggle that you are. I mean, how cool is that? But what you're doing is you're changing the perspectives of so many people around you, um, of just how you react to it, how, happy you are about it, et cetera, um, which is easier said than done very clearly. However, if you have these little consistent, like habitual methods, maybe it's a positive affirmation every time you walk through a door or brush your teeth, even Michael Phelps dealt with depression, the most declared Olympian of all time. He trained his brain to be happy. So it's your attitude first, your mentality first, your your perspective of it's not a disability unless I make it one. And then it's that self-acceptance, that self-love. And then You've now learned, you've like leveled up as far as adapting and being able to shift when things go wrong. So you can handle failure easier. You can also literally do anything for the most part easier because you're better at growth. Like that, that self-discipline, that self-growth is like the most remarkable trait that we have. So being able to empathize with you is like, dude, you have to master that because now you're going to be able to do things. And every time you do something awesome, you did it with one less limb or some sort of disability and that's going to just change the perspective of everybody around you that that can even be done that will inspire so many people because they can't comprehend what you're doing and how you've adapted 
And so you're doing the same thing, but now, now you're doing it. And it's like, it has a greater purpose. What an opportunity that is. That's an unshakable optimist. Like you get your arm blown off the war. I'm like, welcome to the club, buddy. Let's do this. Like, how do you want to grow? Uh, that's just my mentality and, and how I am. I look at that as an opportunity uh, more so than, you know, a loss. Absolutely. Well, in the documentary, it it kind of. Uh, I'm so sorry. I forgot we're still talking about the documentary. <laughs> no, no, no. We're not. We're not. We're we're going all over the place. No. So don't apologize at all, please. This is what I love about these organic conversations. I'm just kind of tying it into the the kind of mental health struggles. Um, so you have you know like a, a bumpy road when it came to the the collegiate um, basketball. Um, you find yourself in military school as we talk before we start recording. I could see the pain in your eyes. So so as we started talking prior, that structure in some people can be very beneficial. There's a lot of people that join the military, for example, and it's the best thing they ever did. But that loss of autonomy can also be detrimental to, to the wrong person being in that. So kind of walk me through your journey there. You know, you've lost your father, some other compounding elements, and, and then walk me through what that was like for you and then ultimately how you find yourself in New York. Yeah. Um, so I, I went in an obsession mode and, and it is honestly kind of good and bad. I became a little linear in vision because I learned very quickly how fake people are. And I was turned off by that, especially with like women. So people were really judgmental, really cruel, really mean. Girls thought this was like the cootie generator or whatever. Like uh, I have leprosy and every if they touch my nub, they get one too or something. Uh, it was like I, I was playing tag, but I was always it. The game never ended. So the, like the self-confidence there and acceptance was challenging. My, my, my friends, my original friends are still my friends. Like they're still the real ones. But I, I recognized very immediately, I keenly observed when the documentary started, I was a sophomore in high school, how many people all of a sudden really liked me because they want to be in a documentary, et cetera. Oh man, dude, I was so turned off. So you didn't find me at many parties. You didn't find me doing things traditionally. I didn't have a girlfriend in high school. I was, I was, it was so clear and obvious to me, like how people like you and enjoy you for the wrong reasons, especially at that age, that I had an advantage. I mean, again, like I came from a household that we had a point where my stepfather made quite a bit of money and stuff. So I had this like good phase, but for the most part, we were, you know, in our, our area outside the Silicon Valley, the wealthiest place in the world, we weren't living like that, right? Except for this little portion of time. Uh, so I, I, I think that people that come from a little bit of hard backgrounds don't have these massive comfort zones, this like pretentious nature to them. I think you're at an absolute advantage, which means most of the world is at an absolute advantage. And I know that sounds crazy because it's like who you know and your networks and your resources or your your mentality of, of becoming successful is how you become successful, et cetera. But like, dude, like you don't grow in your comfort zone. And a plenty of kids who are really wealthy come from really wealthy families who are really intelligent, et cetera, are at, at my age living with their parents still. Like it is often, like it is a lot now. It's crazy, but you don't grow in your comfort zone. So because like, think of the greatest rappers out there, the, the greatest athletes, et cetera. Come on, man. Like they, they came from nothing. They like, for the most part, a lot of them came from nothing. You think like Allen Iverson wasn't even allowed in his house. He's out playing street ball every day uh, because he's in survival mode. He is in, in comfort zone. So I became obsessed with basketball and obviously had a lot of catching up to do. My size helped my natural ability to sh like block shots made me useful for any team I was on as a defensive king, but I didn't start playing basketball when I was like two years old or whatever. So I had to start 
kind of from scratch and learn, but also learn in a way that there wasn't some sort of end all be all, hey, watch this footage of this person playing with one arm because we were making up as we went, including the weight room, including working out, et cetera. So it became a full time thing for me. I mean, I, I, I was uh, I created like habitual like habits that built out this routine uh, where I was all but obsessed because all I had in my crappy life was that basketball. And that was my way of feeling a sense of purpose and accepting myself. Um, So that's, that's, that was my big kind of turning point was in high school. And as I, I grew through high school, I, because I, I was staying away from parties and these distractions and not hanging out. I'm just ranting on, I was a loner. And because I was a loner, I was playing basketball by myself at some park all the time, uh, running in the mornings, et cetera, by myself. Because I was that loner, I just grew faster than everybody else. Like I grew out of asthma because I ran every morning on top of like PE on top of practice. I, you know, worked out. I did things that other people didn't do. And all of a sudden, the guys who were phenomenal basketball players who were 10 times better than me, all of a sudden were bench warmers. And I was like the MVP of the conference. And we're talking about like, I didn't play basketball in Maine. We're talking about the most populated state in California, like or in the country, California. I mean, like there's so many pro athletes that came out of my district alone. Uh, Brandon Crawford was my neighbor growing up for the Giants. He's won three World Series. Stephen Piscotti from the A's was on my high school team. Zach Ertz was on my rival team. He won a Super Bowl for the Eagles. There's a lot of athletes out of there, but I became this dominant player by my senior year of high school because I progressed because I wasn't distracted. And I feel oftenly, especially the youth, and I'm talking directly to your son. You can look at this when he comes home from school today. If you go on the settings of one of these cell phones, uh, we have our comfort zones in our pockets now. We're addicted to that stimulation. And that's all calculated through algorithms, through social media, et cetera. If I look at your son's phone, I bet you he's on his phone six hours a day. I bet you your son, I want you to look, I want you to see if your son's on. I want you to let me know. I bet it's six hours. I bet. And you have 24 hours a day. The difference between you and Elon Musk when it comes to time is nothing. We all have 24 hours a day. How you use it defines you. We all have great intentions, but how you use it defines you. So eight hours you sleep, you now have 16 hours a day, right? If you sleep eight hours, let's just say you do, you got two thirds of your day left. If you go to school or work, there's seven, eight hours. So now what are you doing with the rest of it? And that, that last gap of time is what matters the most by far. How are you using that back end, that eight hours a day? Um, are you spending six of it on your phone, homework, practice, et cetera? Are you trying to be successful at X, Y, or Z and you're only going to practice like every other kid in the country isn't going to practice and working hard? Like if it, when it comes to business, are you just putting in them as much effort with that time like, what about somebody that's obsessed that sleeps four hours a day and just is absolutely absurd and wired that way with no distraction and lives and breathes it? Now, somebody is going 20 hours a day to maybe your two or three. Who do you think is going to win? And that was me. That was the difference. That's how I caught up and surpassed my peers. It was just absolute obsession. And I've learned to do this, this adaptation, this focus, creating like 21-day habits and creating a goal, whether it be financial, academic, athletic. I learned to do this where I just can become obsessive about anything and then I just take it. It's like winning the matrix. It's just, I I just like grabbing uh, what I want out of this life. And and I don't even think it's, uh, you know, asking for it. I don't think it's even 
there's all these strategies and different ways people are coming up with to obtain things from the universe. I, I just straight up take it. I'm a pirate, man. Like that's it. I'm going to work every day towards it. Braces don't work in a day. A little bit of pressure over time works a lot better than a lot of pressure at once. So I'm just going to grow a little bit each day towards that direction and have the self-discipline to make it non-negotiable and no one can get in the way of me doing it. And I'm so stubborn. I'm using that to an advantage. No, I'm not hanging out with friends till I get this done. I'm not going to bed till I get this done, et cetera. So I just progressed faster than everybody else. And that became my obsession with basketball. That's how I did it really is just that, um, that method of, of habitual nature of, of creating and building out a very healthy routine. So you got to a high level. Kind of talk to me how you found yourself in military school and then beyond that. So senior year of high school, I was getting recruited by uh, – an absurd quantity of colleges. I, you know, I had, I was going to go to Pepperdine, but I was talking to San Francisco and St. Mary's, et cetera. But I, you know, Pepperdine's pretty awesome. And what happened is I was sitting in my, um, my class, uh, my English class, and I get a call on my phone from an area code and I picked up my phone in class my senior year. And uh, it, they said it was so-and-so from the White House. And I hung up on them because I thought it was a prank call. And they called back and I excused myself to the hallway. And they said, is this uh, Kevin? I said, yeah. They said, the president of the United States saw you and, uh, you know, Sports Illustrated was inspired by you, wants to meet you. Would you be interested? You know, as a 17-year-old kid, I was like, let me check my schedule. Pencil them in. That sounds sick. Um, and we talked for a little bit. But apparently, um, it was George W. Bush at the time. And obviously, he was going through a hard time with, you know, the pending recession, but also like Hurricane Katrina, et cetera. And his term was almost up. So he's like, might as well go hang out with some one-armed guy, I guess. Uh, <laughs> great dude. Um but yeah, I mean, like it, it was wild. So a few months later, I, I go to San Francisco airport. He comes down on Air Force One. I meet him off the plane, spend, I don't know, let's say 30, 40 minutes with him, which is an absurd amount of time for a 17-year-old kid to be meeting the president. Um, so genuine and authentic with me. And it, like, what a cool day uh, that was. I mean, I didn't make my seventh grade team because basketball is a two-arm sport, said some random dude's dad who played coach in seventh grade. Uh, and now I, you know, I changed my habits, became obsessed about it, changed my routine, learned to believe in myself, learned self-love, et cetera. And now I'm being recognized by the most powerful person on the planet for playing ball with one arm um, in a short quantity of time, four and a half years. I mean, that, that, that's impressive, man. Like, and, and it really is just living, breathing proof, which is what I game that you're capable of anything and adapting towards whatever you want. Uh, but you, if you don't believe it, you know, don't expect the world to. You got to learn to believe it and make believe that everyone else. Just work in silence and just grow, and then they're going to notice. Um, catches as I again, I was born on Friday the thirteenth, and I had a basketball game that night, so it was produced a little differently in the documentary because uh, the camera guy was it with the president, but he wasn't there for the rest of it. Um, so they produced it a little bit, but I broke my leg um, that night in a basketball game. And uh, I, I, I originally had, I guess, tweaked it. Remember that uh, Monta Vista game where I missed that free throw? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, that was brutal. And I want a spoiler alert for everyone watching. But that was against Zach Gertz. He was, he was the one I was playing against. Um, that's when I originally, when I got hit at the end of the game, that's when I got this little stretch racket. I kept playing on it. So after I met the president, I went back to a game and, I, and it, just, it just went out. Like it broke it, it snapped, um, went to the hospital, uh, watching myself on every national news station, being the president, I was sitting in a wheelchair with a broken leg. And uh, I was when I lost all hope of getting any of these scholarship offers that were offered to me. Uh, it was, it was, you know, take a chance on Captain Hook, maybe Captain Hook with a, 
a broke leg, a peg leg. That's too much pirate for anybody. So um, this is this was the spiraling moment, uh, one of the worst times of my life. I feel like the ten-year-old kid. I mean, let's talk about it. Like, how kind of a sick joke? I mean, again, things out of your control. But how are you going to meet the president and break the leg the same day? When all I had in my crappy life was basketball, right, and was my sense of purpose, et cetera. How are you going to lose everything in one day the same day you meet the president? Like that's just absurd. And then you have this camera crew in your face, and you just feel like, dude, I can't even process any of this. Like this is. This is absolutely absurd. Um, so I did something that I'm not proud of. And honestly, my, my stepdad and my mom, they were not aware at the time. Uh, but I took the bottle of Vicodin that um, the doc gave me and I, you know, I was done, man. I just couldn't take it anymore. And, uh, you know, a point of weakness for me, I, I think when anxiety, that stress of the future, it being uncertain and the depression of the past, how I felt when I was 10, how I felt growing up, how I felt like that loner, like people only valued me because of basketball. Now basketball was over. And so there, so should be my life. That was the rationality of it all. So I took this bottle of painkillers and I, uh, ah, man, enough to kill a horse. I don't know how I'm alive today. I mean, the milligrams of my height and weight, and taking a whole bottle of that, like I woke up at like a day and a half later, dazed and confused and very, very hungry. Um, but man, like every time I take a breath of breath of gratitude, and of course I'm grown up, I'm married, I have a beautiful one and a half year old son who shouldn't be alive. And, and it, like the thing I would tell people is like, you know, especially in high school, high school is 4% of your life. Modern medicine, you can live to 100. It's a tutorial to a video game until you graduate high school. You have no control at home. You have no control at school. You haven't even started yet. You're just like dealing with a bunch of, you're reactive to a bunch of things that you're told to do and things that have happened to you. That's all you, your life is. It gets far superior once you graduate, for most people anyway. Uh, for myself, I didn't think that there was a life after this. And so it became a new chapter. And this, this might be collectively the hardest chapter in my life, uh, which was probably the most defining chapter as far as me growing up and becoming mature at a young age um, and really stemming a lot of the, the lessons that I learned to become successful. Uh, but what happened was uh, the guy who made the documentary, Frank Martin, um, great dude, he had gone to military academy. So he, he went to Fort Union Military School, which is in Virginia. It's a prep school, like a fifth year high school. It's a private academy run exactly like West Point, except worse. Instead of shooting guns, um, I played basketball. <laughs> but it was like, you know, boot camp six months. This was nine months of that. I mean, so it's like I compared with one of my buddies who went to the Marines. I was going to go to Pepperdine on the beach, Malibu. You know, you see the girls down there. It's crazy. Now I'm at an all-guy school in Virginia, and I didn't know what humidity was. It felt like Satan's armpit out there during that time, and we had a we had like three pairs of clothes. The hygiene was awful. It just smelled like gross man orcs all the time. It was just, they took out the bathroom stalls too. Cause someone was doing steroids in them. So like, Oh man, I've seen some things, man. I still have the dreams. Uh, but I went to this, this place whose unofficial model motto was worst place to be at best place to be from. Um, it was a great opportunity for people that wanted to go to military branches because it was easy enough to go to like the Annapolis, the Citadels, the West Points, the Air Force. Out of that, it was a feeder for that. Um, I became General uh, Jackson. He's a three-star general. I became his flag guy, which was awesome um, because I silver-tongued my way out of doing those parades. Um, and he just sat under the tree and made fun of all the cadets. I sat there and tried not to laugh. It was it was awesome. Um, but man, that place was a very challenging experience. And I went there to redeem scholarship offers. So I played under this coach, Fletcher Errett, who is in the hall of fame for Virginia. He coached at, um, Fort Union for 42 years. And the guy is beloved by the entirety of the basketball community. And he had 
opportunities. He could have he could have been a head assistant at UNC, like best friends with Roy Williams. I mean, th- th- this guy is a living les- legend. Uh, but the first day of practice, what he does, he's old school, so no, no t- like wrapping ankles, no none of that. He, he shows you how to put a jock strap on the first day of practice, and you know he's like a like a seventy five year old man, and some things you just can't unsee. You know what I'm saying? Just ingrained into your memory bank forever. Um, but that man uh, forgot more about basketball than I'll ever learn. And gosh, what a coach! Like unbelievable caliber coach. So. Hundreds of people travel for this team to go play there, um, and he takes 15. And I was kind of that black horse for him. Uh, while I was at that military school, I was third leading scorer, leading shot blocker, and rebounder. And I had quite a uh, trialing time throughout my uh, stay there, but made it through. So that then led you to another college and ultimately to playing all over the world. So kind of give me some of the bullet points for that. And then we'll obviously transition to the next chapter, which was working back in schools. For sure. So, yeah, yeah. I had a hard time. And I, I played against this guy, Thomas Robinson. And if you remember his name, he played at Kansas and he, he played in the championship NCAA game against Anthony Davis in Kentucky. He was the runner up MVP of the season. That guy was awesome. He went to this school called Brewster Academy, another prep school, not as kind of buttoned up as Fork Union, of course. But, I mean, it was a a school that hadn't lost a basketball game for nine years. Like, they were just the number one team. Oh, man. And we we drove. uh, Coach Eric drove. And he drives 90 miles per hour and falls asleep half the time. So, you can on the side of the road when you drive. That guy. And you can't talk and you can't fart in the bus. So, we drove from Virginia to Maine. In a day. And then got off the bus, this short bus, like this mini bus, and and played a basketball game. And our legs are like, oh, my gosh. And we played against the number one prep school in the country. Now, I don't know why, but I always played up to my level of competition. Like, but I'd also play down to my, like, if I just played against, like, phenomenal basketball players, I just dominated. But, like, when I played so-and-so, I just, I don't know what it was about me, but um, which I hate, but I, I just wish I only played with the best caliber because then I would have just been so much better. But I played against this guy, I got matched up against Thomas Robinson. He was, he was signing autographs walking to this gym. I had no idea who he was. And um, I believe I held him to two points and I dropped 15 on him and we beat their team and destroyed their streak. Now, every guy in that gym shook my hand, every coach. I mean, and there were coaches out the door uh, watching this game. Uh, but like, Getting Coach Eric said, you know, in 40 plus years of doing this, I've never had a harder time getting somebody recruited than you of your caliber, Kevin. It's because you got one arm and people respect how you play, but they don't realize how they can make you better. Because, again, it's like my biggest disability in basketball wasn't that I had one arm. It was people's perceptions of what I was capable of with one arm. That was my disability. Your inability to understand what I can and cannot do was my biggest disability in basketball or at all, really. Uh, which which was tough for me. So um, this is what my coach said. He's like, coach, uh, co- coach said, getting into college is like asking uh, a woman to marry you. You ask 50 women. That's what he told me. So you ask 50 women because uh, you can only marry one, right? But you ask 50 of them. And that was a bold strategy by coach. But uh, that's what we started to do. So Wofford, Colgate, uh, we had um, Dartmouth and Princeton. Uh, but I, you know, just didn't come from wealth and Ivy League didn't have scholarships. Uh, so the Ivy League was uh, out for me. 
Um, and then I got to uh, this school, Manhattan College, who recruited me. And I had quite the uh, recruiting trip. These guys were, were wild. I played under uh, Barry Rorson, uh, a.k.a. Slice. He's the man. And so I got recruited up to a mid-major D1 school. If you're a basketball fan, St. Peter's, who just had their Cinderella story in the NCAA tournament this year, um, we're in our conference. So we, we, uh, yeah, we played in Manhattan College out in New York and Riverdale and the Bronx became a Jasper. And that was quite the transition from, you know, West Coast, California, suburbia to the middle of nowhere country in Virginia to New York City. Um, that kind of check all the boxes there. But man, what a time I had. So then from there, walk me through the professional side, because I know you ended up working in different countries as well, or playing in different countries, yeah. I say. Yeah, I mean, I played I played three years. Uh, there was a coaching switch, so we had a new coach come in my junior year of high or college. And, um, yeah, we just didn't click very well. I mean, he's a great, like a commander. Just I didn't like how he ran things as much, and I think he had quite a bit to learn. Uh, but he, he was a great coach. Um, yes me to stay i had uh taken 40 credits a year so i was on track to getting my master's in four years in college because they had an accelerated uh mba program uh but i just was so dreading my life my junior year of college that i ended up just graduating and taking off um so i went to go and play in taiwan uh for a little bit you know out there but uh problem was is that like you know a lot so Ultimately, I started doing a speaking tour out there that was I got to play basketball and just give presentations as well, uh, which was challenging with like a translator. But, uh, you know, through this awesome organization and that paid a lot more and I still got to play ball, but everything was about me, which inflated my ego drastically. I mean, it was just awesome. Um, and then I was out in Hong Kong and we grew that, you know, out to, uh, you know, go to Chengdu and et cetera. So we, we grew out into even Mongolia. So I did a lot of work out in Asia uh, playing against pro basketball players um, and doing a speaking tour, which was ultimately a transition uh, of kind of purpose. It was this little pivot from, you know, one direction through basketball through still playing basketball, but being able to reach people with wisdom that was given to me along the way from some incredible coaches and obviously my parents and teachers, et cetera. So another real common denominator that comes out a lot of these conversations, when people have been through a journey, often a very dark journey, you know, they find themselves exactly the same way as you did with the Vicodin, one of the most healing elements becomes purpose. So once they've, you obviously have to you know, heal first, but once you do telling your story, paying, you know, paying it forward, telling, um, you know, sharing your message and helping other people becomes healing for the person themselves as well. Did you experience that yourself when you started doing these talks? I, I did. I, I uh, the first one I got asked to do was in, in college, and uh, they offered me ten thousand dollars to go do a speech. And, I was, and they saw me in the news, and I'm like, "What?" And I wasn't allowed to get paid because of NCAA rules. Um, but I was like, "Dude, if anyone wants to pay me ten thousand dollars to come speak, I'll go speak." But I didn't know what I was doing. I was writing my presentation on a napkin on an airplane on the way there. Super, super awesome to me. Um, and I got there and I spoke, and I'm like, "Well, I'm free, so whether I suck at this or not, whatever, right?" Um, so I got there in, in Corpus Christi, Texas, and I did a presentation and I had an hour slot and I did a, a full like, I believe it was like 22 minutes. And I was like, yeah, that's about good. I like, just ended it. But it was weird. Over the next three and a half hours, I was doing autographs and pictures with people in like a different room. I was having one on one conversations with people. I'm like, dude, I don't understand how somebody's trying to pay me this much to do this. I don't understand how bad I like I felt like I did a horrible job. Obviously, I didn't take up the time. 
Uh, but I still was able to connect with so many people and be able to talk to them one-on-one. And I didn't realize that I could connect with people and how many people were suffering. Um, so yeah, there was this uh, sense of purpose that I think developed over the time, the better I got at it. And I've spoken at Google and Facebook and the United Nations and um, everywhere to like a Taiwanese prison. Like I've had some crazy engagements, um, which has just been really interesting and, and I think captivating. Um, had some awesome opportunities throughout my journeys, um, but it was just coming into a, a sense of purpose. And I think that purpose for me was really a fool learns from his own mistakes, a wise man learns from others. That's biblical. But if you take like the people that you, I guess, idolize the most, and what defining traits do they have? Like what, like if you're like, not even like people, you know, but like all time living or dead, et cetera. And it's like, if you look at Gandhi, if you look at Martin Luther King, if you look at Jesus Christ, like love, empathy, kindness, it looks so simplistic. Like if you just take religion out of it or beliefs or, you know, inequality, et cetera, if you just scrap down what they are actually about, it's so simplistic. And, and like empathy is something that George Washington used strategically in the Revolutionary War. Like there are certain superpowers that if you can just kind of harness in those masteries, you just become the type of person that you idolize. And then it's like your sense of purpose and fulfillment is, is so much greater. Um, and and it's, it's easier to justify some of your hardships, your jadedness. Um, you have a little bit more, um, I guess, inner peace. I mean, life is not easy and there's no rule book of being human. We're all wired um, the same, but also very differently in a sense where you have to find like there's millions of ways to live. Which way do you want? to try and you have to be okay with finding out like, that's not the way, that's not the way and again, being adaptable until you kind of settle into this form of you that you're truly proud of. And if, if you're locked in a cycle of like crap, meaning like Gary V talks about this a lot, you got to make your passion, your paycheck, like the easiest way to rob yourself of happiness in life is, uh, you know, working in an occupation that you're not passionate about uh, that you have to go do every day. You, you can't have that mentality. And if, if you're, you feel trapped in life, you have to have the courage to make a change. If you spend two months saving up money, don't like DoorDash or whatever, just save every penny you have. So you have a buffer move to make a transition and apply to like 10 jobs or whatever, all of which you think will, will make you feel a little bit more purposeful rather than just, you know, sales or marketing or accounting or whatever you feel trapped in. Uh, but what's your Harvard degree matter if you're not happy? I want you to look at that, like in a sense of like, what's that big house matter? What the state of happiness is mostly just the decision, and and, and it's the the psychological ability to constantly progress. If you feel like you're stagnant in life, there's no stagnant as a human. You're regressing. You're getting worse, and therefore you're going to be in a state of depression. Um, that's only going to be quicksand. You're only going to sink into it. So you need to really hone your focus on something that at least you believe you want. Try it out. Maybe it's not for you but continue to test the waters until you uh, amplify something that feels like a true calling. And for me, uh, it's very simple. Like my definition life, uh, my dad's motto is creed was anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Uh, Mine is, you know, there's the best parts of humanity, the best things that represent humanity at our best is love, empathy, and kindness. And it costs you nothing to be kind and to be consciously kind. You have to be empathetical. It's my favorite portion of emotional intelligence, just be loving, kind, and empathetical and just understand other people and, and try to be helpful to them and, and leadership is service. And that's all it is. 
ultimately my, my defining trait, you know, this world's going to be a better place for me being in it. That's non-negotiable. You can put a gun to my head. That doesn't change. And like what, like, and, and there's nothing anybody can say to judge that or ridicule that or get me to think a different way. Like whether there's an afterlife or not, you know, et cetera, that's faith. None of us know, but while I'm here, this world's going to be a better place for me being born in it. And that's non-negotiable. And that's, that's me in a sentence. And that's, that's what I'm about. And that's what I'm going to do. And when I started doing that and became monetized, doing what I love, making it seem like I never actually work. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, dude, I get paid to help people travel around the world and elevate others. Oh my gosh, that is phenomenal. And I, you know, create production. I do all these different, um, you know, cause the power of film and connecting with people is just so brilliant. So I, I just, dude, I've hacked life. I'm so, I didn't know what happiness was growing up. I was living in circumstances out of my control and I didn't become a part of my circumstance. I just found my purpose. I've created my creed. I live by it and I grow every day. And I feel like I'm not regressing by any means, but I'm only helping more people getting bigger platforms and, uh, and creating more. And that is something that I'm truly proud of. And when I pass away, I know my son, you know, that knowledge, that sense of, uh, belonging to, I will be able to pass that wisdom through him, through the documentary and the book I created, etc. Beautiful. That's something I talk about a lot as well. And the people that have been on here, some of them are special operations soldiers and, you know, movie stars and all these things, but that's the binding element. They're all kind, compassionate people and they're doing something with their life to make people feel better. And you made the kind of spiritual observation. I find that's the common denominator. You want to take all the religions and pull out the main things. It's kind of really don't be a dick. Sorry, my dog's back <laughs> in the background. You know, it is. It's, no, it's one is no one has ever said that better. <laughs> Don't be a dick. Just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but even like the human body, intrinsically, we all know that when you do something for, without expecting anything in return, when you do something kind, it, it feels good. And when you're an asshole, it feels horrible. You know that guilt eats away at you, whether you, whether you accept it or not. So we've got the, the wisdom of the ages. We've got the intrinsic anatomical element that are both telling us, hey, this is the way we should be. And I agree with you completely. I did a, I was a firefighter, so I, did a job that truly was for service and I did it for that. I didn't do it for the paycheck. It's not a good profession to go into if you're looking to <laughs> make a lot of money. But good retirement, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you make it, that's the problem. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but now this is the same thing and I get to have these conversations and then we get to share our conversation with literally the world and try and make the world better. So it's, it's so, so great just to hear someone who had fame, who had, you know... Um, financial gain who had notoriety whatever whatever it is and and as we find out so often it's the basal elements of kindness and compassion and service that are truly rewarding everything else is fluff 100 and, and don't get me wrong like i i love money money's the freedom to consistently do this and be able to help more people and build more things to help people i'll take as much as i can like that's that's awesome. Like money's great. And honestly, like being awarded feels good for a little bit, but like I got a box of trophies that don't really matter to me. Like I don't remember every basketball game I've ever played, but when I do something astronomical to change somebody's life, I can never forget that. Like never forget that. And, and it's not even about what I do. It's about how I can elevate other people to become awesome leaders and just catalysts of change themselves and be warriors of just like representing humanity at its best. And if, and if you could replicate that, over the course of the world to a certain like majority percentage, I think that all the problems that we have, I mean, we can make disagreements, but at the end of the day, like 
dude, like your point, don't be a dick. Like this is that simple. It's so simplistic and we just overcomplicate things with, with rules. And and sometimes religion just um, allows us to be judgmental towards others because we believe in something so strong that we project our beliefs on other people who don't quite understand why you're part of that religion because they haven't felt your love and kindness yet. So like, why would they abide by all these hard rules? Like they're going to go to hell because you don't believe in what I believe. Like it's, it's kind of hard. I mean, Jesus showed love. God is supposed to be the judgment, but we're supposed to live like Jesus who is love and kind and empathetical, whether you believe in the Bible or not, Jesus existed. And there's 66 books in the Bible. Jesus is alive in four of them called the Synoptic gospels. There's four books of the Bible, 66, he's alive. And he just preached love and kindness and empathy the whole time. And we overcomplicated it. That's all we did. I mean, Lucifer tried to play God and judge. I mean, we're so, it's ingrained in us to be judgmental. However, if we just don't be a dick, in your words, just be kind and loving, maybe people will understand that there's some sort of better way of living. But if you're judgmental and you're projecting your beliefs on other people, then like, that's not like a way that people are going to be like really turned on to like want to live. Right. Just like, don't be a dick. Like just, that's it. Just treat other people like you want to be treated. And, And the empathetical nature here is that like, imagine if everybody is exactly the same as we're born. And I know this is crazy. Imagine if every single person is the same exact blank slate and we are a collection of our experiences and memories. So I might disagree with somebody with all my heart, but had I been born in their shoes and, and dealt with their experiences, I might have been wired the exact same way. And that that's crazy. So like, how are you so right? Because you lucked out based upon something that was completely out of your control, which is what you were born into and the experiences that you had. Like that, that just doesn't, it doesn't settle well with me. So I treat other people like maybe they aren't as involved as me, et cetera. Maybe how can I elevate them? How can I serve them? How can I help them? Um, instead of like, uh, you know, manipulating or et cetera, like it's, it's more of a persuade, like how can I get people to, to become better and happier and loving and self-loving and spread that positivity, which spreads just as fast as negativity. I mean, I can't tell you love will always defeat hate, but I'll tell you that hate always defeats hate. It always wins in the end if it's hate versus hate. So it's just, how, how can we, uh, evolve? I think as human beings, um, cause there's two options. We either do it or we become uh, the new Neanderthals to AI and synthetics take over because they're just better than us. Or we can take the best parts of what it means to be human, enhance that, and we can all kind of try to live towards that. And we, uh, we, we're non-replaceable or we completely are. And then, and, then, and then it's like we already all have cell phones in our pockets. We're already attached to you know, technology in a sense that's growing and evolving faster than humans are, are biological, you know, beings could ever evolve. So like technology is breeding more technology and that's only going to happen at a more rapid pace. When are we obsolete? Uh, because we're just breeders, I guess the, uh, the uh, organs are the, uh, you know, the reproduction organs of, of robots and synthetics. I mean, if, if we don't kind of grow and not repeat the uh, cyclical nature of our history, uh, then we are, you know, I guess hitting ourselves in the ability to be kind of obsolete by technology. And it's scary. And I know I'm going on a rant about that, but I'm, 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 my big fear is that I really believe in humans are just absolutely beautiful creatures. 
And scientists will tell you that wood is the most valuable commodity in the universe. And I disagree. I think human beings are. I really think that we are. We're inventors. We creators. We're so brilliant in so many ways. And yeah, we have flaws. But if we can just kind of evolve and grow as one, as a unit and just level up, dude, I think that we, we're here to stay. Otherwise, I think that we become, you know, the next little monkey on that evolutionary table that grows into um, the synthetic AI organisms, which in turn might be the future that, that we have in front of us if we don't make some changes. Well, it's funny because I, my side gig is a stuntman and I played the, the T-1000 in the Terminator 2 show for a long time. So <laughs> I'm just getting <laughs> yeah. these Cyberdyne, Cyberdyne no flashbacks way. right now. <laughs> I love that. That's so crazy. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty familiar with what you're talking about. There'll be robots crushing our skulls. It's Elon Musk's big fear. It's like he's like <laughs> such a brilliant guy who sounds like a crazy man, but it's like, dude, it's like he came back from the future and he's like, Oh, this technology is really easy. I'm just gonna win it like be the richest man in the world. Like cars will drive themselves and we'll just like go to space. Like, how do you privatize any of the stuff he's done in one lifetime? It's absolutely absurd. But he, his big fear is really AI. He just bought Twitter because of bots and shills that are kind of ruining the freedom of speech and, and blowing up uh, mis, misinformation. And he's, he's trying, to, uh, trying to prevent that. Uh, he lobbied with millions of dollars against uh, the Wild West of, of AI and how there's no real uh, understanding of it. Therefore, there's no laws permitting you know, the use of growth with it. And if you ever watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix, man, that documentary terrifies me that there's already algorithms that are self-evolving uh, without any like programmer doing it, like it has the evolving nature to continue to grow. When does that spin out of control and become your Skynet, buddy? It's all your fault. <laughs> I, <laughs> so with that, taking the the positive element of you know technology, you know you have been able to be watched by obviously middle school, high schools, including Ocala, Florida here. Um, so talk to me about that, the Believe in You project, and then we'll transition to some exciting things that you've got um, coming up too. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I do uh, I speak a lot of corporate uh, events and, and I got into youth because coaches and teachers really elevated my life and the best way to help them is to help kids. So it's obviously not as lucrative. And man, what a tough audience, a bunch of high schoolers who don't want to be there. Like the worst audience in the world. You feel like a bad comedian at a dive bar. Like when you start, it's tough, man. But I, I do a lot of borderline appropriate jokes and really get them going in the beginning. And then I, I, I keep it real with them to an extent. Like I say things sometimes that maybe teachers or like principals can't. Um, what happened is I, I, I kept being called back to do more and more. It was never my intention to like go on tour speaking to youth. Uh, but I had this uh, sense of connecting with them because there are is so much depression and anxiety and like there's self-love. Like they, they have so many weaknesses that I've had awesome and, and had honestly, I had all the same weaknesses, but I was blessed with mentors to give me the wisdom that I, of course, acted upon to grow. And so giving them that same knowledge is just like astronomical leaps and bounds for these kids. The problem was, is I um, spoke to a lot of colleges and high schools and then like a high school had all the kids rotate out. So after four years of doing this, Tony Robbins was mentoring me for a little bit. And he, uh, and I was discouraged. I was like, dude, I can't speak to schools anymore. And he's like, I don't know how you do it anyway. It's a tough audience. And I was like, dude, like, but like, that's where my heart is. I'm so passionate about helping those kids as I was once helped, but like, there's not enough of me. 
And he's, and he challenged me to find a bigger platform. So I created this thing called the Believe in You series, and I and I found strategic partnerships. I uh, partnered with Varsity Brands. Um, a lot of you might not know their company as well, but there's kind of three entities under their umbrella: a BSN Sporting Goods, which is bigger than Dick's, but they don't have stores. They just every athletic director, like you know, pro team, etc., they sell directly to. So like uh, Under Armour, Nike, they use them as their sales force. They do pretty much everything. They're huge. Uh, Varsity Spirit, which is a cheerleading company, um, which is the juggernaut of cheerleading. Uh, they are awesome. They do like their big partnership with Disney. So like every, not everyone, but the vast majority of cheerleaders out there use Varsity Spirit. They're such an incredible company. And then Herf Jones says class ring, letterman jacket, cap and gown, yearbooks, et cetera. Um, so they're all under one entity and they're in every school of the country of America in one form or the other. So my partnership with them was like, hey, like, I hope that our you know, strategic partnership, like we can really change, not a school to school, like elevate their bar, like how to do things, but like, how do we raise the floor of education on a national level? Like how, to, and, and I've spoken to probably like 850 plus schools. So I've seen the good, bad and ugly in 49 states. I've also soaked up wisdom of how schools do it the right way. So I've collaborated with them. Like, dude, let's do a Believe in You series. Like you don't have $30,000 to have one of these celebrities come in and speak to your school. Well, we'll do like 10, 15 minute long episodes. Um, we made a curriculum around each episode. It's completely free. Like that, that social emotional learning, like there's companies that sell for like $500,000. We are giving it to everywhere for free. The company's perspective is who wants to buy a yearbook or like a class ring if everyone hates high school. Like we're trying to like put the kids first and create spirit first, um, sense of belonging, all within the realm of like, uh, if kids are loved at home, right? They come to school to learn. If kids are loved at home, they come to school to learn. If they're not loved at home, they come to school to be loved. And how's that working out? Well, New York Times this weekend just put out an article that drugs and alcohol are now number two biggest dangers to teens. Second, suicide, depression, anxiety is now the number one problem with the American youth. That's hard. So if the kids aren't being loved at home, you can't control that. They come to school to be loved. That is in our control. And I've seen schools who have figured it out, but there's a complete disconnect with the education system that drives me freaking nuts that every principal is guessing how to run a school. Like, like, they're, like they could do it for 25 years and they could be really good at it, but there's no universal communication between all the schools. So we're creating a leadership class right now that we're going to plug into all the schools that I've been to. Um, which is the common denominator of like the most spirited schools of the country. Uh, when there's that spirit, that lack of, um, you know, judgment and it's replaced with kindness and love and acceptance and inclusion, uh, which has been done. I mean, kids love school. They cry when they leave school. They, it's not a four-year prison sentence, right? So that's what we're trying to create. So if you go to believeinyou.com, we have the Believe in You series. That's free for everybody, uh, but it was exclusive at first. And then we're like, dude, let's just give it to the world. Um, which has been a phenomenal experience. And I know that's how you you knew me through your son watching it, uh, which is cool. It's not Yellowstone. It is not Ted Lasso. I made it, you know, so it's not the greatest in the world, but um, it is educational and it is a great break for teachers to, uh, you know, take a break and, you know, sometimes same message, different voice, but each episode has a different theme. Uh, Allison Schmitz in season one is about mental health and wellness. She's a phenomenal human being. She's a Olympian who's won multiple medals uh, in swimming uh, for America and her episodes literally saved lives, but there's tons of different episodes, different um, 
themes. Um, and it's one piece to a big pie that I'm building out with varsity brands again to kind of change the game of what it means to go to school in this country. Uh, so kids aren't just going to school for sports and homecoming. Uh, otherwise, you know, if we fail our mission, school's inevitably going to end up on the metaverse with Mark Wahlberg or Mark Wahlberg, sorry. Some of the girls wouldn't mind that. Who knows? Yeah, right? <laughs> um, boogie nights all over again. Um, no, but, uh, you know, with Zuckerberg's metaverse, which is, is the future and is coming quickly, uh, but then you lose the sense of like, you know, growth and you're now literally doing education in your comfort zone. So there's, there's going to be rapid, uh, psychological problems with that, but uh, that's what I'm trying to kind of lean and fight against. Not, not the future of, of the metaverse, cause that's happening regardless, but as far as making education a place where people actually enjoy going to, so it isn't a free or prison sentence. And what these kids don't understand, it's completely in their control to run the school however they want to. We're just going to give them the answer key. They all are there with all the same problems, but like they don't realize it. We don't take a step back and talk about it. We miss a lot in the education system. We don't really uh, we push them for higher academic standards. Some states literally like the teachers are paid off of their state testing scores which is wild, like huge bonuses. They only care about putting you in the best schools so they can brag about it. It's like companies. They're like creating workers, right? Like these kids, we're losing that sense of purpose. We're losing that sense of mental health and wellness. We're losing that sense of togetherness or even what it really means to be human. And when you have a bunch of miserable kids trapped in the same place together, kindness, love, and empathy is out the window. There's judgment, it's trauma, gossip, fights, et cetera, suicide, shootings. We're all desensitized to it because it's happening too often now. And what have any one of us has done in front of And that's, that's the mission that I'm on with Varsity Brands is to make that massive positive change because we have the answer key. We're just building it out to make it so turnkey that every school in the country can be like, dude, we're implementing this. And uh, even if you have a principal or athletic director or whatever that just doesn't get it at all, we like should be there. Well, guess what? It's so easy to implement that it changes the whole dynamic and nature of a school and a campus atmosphere that over the course of several years, it, it, it changes the game. And that is my massive mission with the education system. Um, oh my gosh, dude, what a beast. And again, I bring up Elon Musk again, but he said it's easier to colonize Mars than change the education system. He's not wrong. But to this, I tell you, Elon, hold my beer. <laughs> well, mate, I mean, like I said, I, I, what you've done is incredible because it resonated with my son. And I got a really really unique very for a very sad reason um kind of view of mental health in this area overall my son's schools have been amazing but i found out the hard way in his middle school you talk about the silos and good teachers and bad teachers and good principals and bad principals he was going through some stuff where i'm divorced and remarried so his mother's home um there was some stuff going on in relationships there he was you know sad he broke down in the classroom and ended up being sent to um, an institution for three days, a Baycrack. Yeah, totally un illegal, unwarranted, everything. So I discovered through that that our children are being cycled through these psych centers because these schools just were washing their hands of, of the, any mental health issues. You know why? Liability. That's why they're doing it. It's because of liability. It all comes down to money at the end of the day. They don't want to be liable and lose their jobs. So that's it's sick, but you're, you're not wrong. Yeah. Well, well, the thing is they had well-written protocols. They just completely disregarded it. And ultimately, I think wow. it was because the the principal and the, the sheriff's deputy, and I talk, you know, I'm a huge advocate of law enforcement apart from the shitty ones. They just wanted to go home. 
and it would take longer <laughs> to deal with it as a human being than to just ship them off to to a center. So I found out that Florida had an issue. I was one of many, many voices, and that was ultimately changed. Like they've they've moved the needle on that, but. There is a mental health epidemic in our schools and God, after these last two years, even worse than ever now. So you, what you've done to, to remove those silos and give people access to these great messages that clearly resonate with my son who had his own mental health journey himself is phenomenal. And, you know, being part of the solution is exactly that. And who'd have thought the journey that you went through and the basketball career that you'd be doing this now, but what you are doing, and even I want to give a shout out to BSN uh, Sporting Goods because I think they're the ones that provide the track and cross country team that he's a part of, all their uniforms. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, and and removing the cost. I mean, that's a huge thing, and that's kind of what I do with this po- podcast. There are sponsors that allow me to do this and put a roof mm-hmm. over my family's head, but it's free for everyone that listens. And I think that's the other thing. So I applaud you on what you've done. Yeah, thank you so much. And I, I do appreciate that. And, and Varsity, too, is kick butt. So they have me for 70 different engagements a year. I'm a retainer with them. So we do 35 in the spring, 35 in the, the fall now. Uh, so I have more time with my production, et cetera. But they don't charge any of the schools for them. So they select schools. There's, like, all these inquiries. And so, like, they, to your point, like, giving it the free as a value add is huge. Like, like everything that we're building out, um, again, is – is to kind of better the education system as a whole in the sense that you don't have to luck out with a phenomenal principal or teacher or somebody that just runs the school really well so everyone benefits from it. But instead, we dissect what what they do to make it awesome, the variables, um, and then we serve as a catalyst to make that change on a national front. So that's the mission, huge mission, a lot of learning, a lot of growing, a lot of work to do. But I'm not playing Superman, getting my tail kicked, doing this by myself. I'm doing it with a you know a multi-billion dollar company now, which has been tremendous in that youth world. And we're always looking for you know new connections and resources and partners, essentially to to continue to build off what we created. But we're not going to slow down. So it's like we, we're we're on a mission and we're fighting what some would call an unwinnable battle. But again, like I said, man, gun to the head, don't change. This world's going to be a better place for me being in it. And the schools that I speak at, one in particularly last week in Salt Lake City, um, oh my gosh, dude, like <laughs> I, they had like, uh, they had a couple dozen suicide attempts this year. But like, oftenly, like, dude, if you have one or two suicides, you'll probably have six by the end of the year. It's like a domino effect. It's weird. I'm just getting worse. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, obviously there's variables of, of the why. But, you know, we're, we're getting in front of that because these kids, like myself, don't realize that high school might seem so dramatic, but your life really hasn't started yet. And as you grow and you go find your niche, you go find that part in the world that makes sense for you. You go find your happiness and your purpose. Dude, it's so worth it. Like, it's so worth it. But if you just feel like Tim Carey said this, if you feel so depressed all the time, you're like you're just body sick of playing that avatar. And you're just trapped. You just feel so trapped. But cool thing about high school is that there's an expiration date to it. And one way or the other, you're going to get out of it. And then your life's going to change whether you like it or not. And it'll probably change for the better if you're that miserable in it. So it's just like, just holding on. I mean, that's it. Like, all you got to do is like, just let time do its thing and not put so much pressure on yourself. So uh, sorry what happened to your son, man. That, that's huge. I know that the the state of Florida has actually put out this whole like mandate about mental health and wellness, and they're the first to really do it. So I'm really excited for the state of Florida. Um, a lot of a lot of pros and cons to that state, buddy. There's a lot going on in Florida, 
And I love speaking there because they didn't think COVID existed. I don't know what it was, man. But I never, being from California, we were on house arrest. Like, go to Florida, they're like, what's a COVID? Um, so it was uh, different, different vice. But, uh, you know, love love a lot of parts of that state. And uh, sorry that that happened. And sounds like your son's doing a lot better now in high school than he was middle school. But I'm glad that I could have been a little bit of a part to his journey and that we can connect through him. That's awesome. No, you absolutely were. And yeah, it's, def- it's definitely kind of, you know, moving the needle. And yeah, every every place has pros and cons. Um, all right. I want to do one more area before we kind of switch to closing up. Um, before you- we do, before, how'd you end up in Florida from obviously clearly Australia? Like, do you just go to the place with all like the alligators and crocodiles or what? what's up, man? Like, how'd you make that big old move? Well, I'm actually from England. It's funny. A lot of people oh, mistake that. Yeah, so. You, so that's even a cooler accent. You just... <laughs> Australian, and you confused me with that. So England's even classier. Look at that. So I met, when I did the stunts, I was working in Japan, uh, open Universal Studios. I met my little boy's mother. She was working there too. So we got married, came over to the US. Didn't work out, sadly, but... um, you know, I obviously had a little little munchkin by that point, so Heck I yeah. became a firefighter here and stayed here and absolutely love it. So, uh, yeah, Florida, where we live in Ocala, is a beautiful, beautiful little town. A lot of people know it just as kind of a, a truck stop on the way through to up north or down south, but uh, it's it's a real sense of community here and a lot of very good people. So, we really awesome. mean to get you to the his school one day. I love that. We'll have to set it up. That'd be cool. Brilliant. Well, one more area then. Let's talk television shows. Good influence and catch them all. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> yeah, we have we have get in the game. I made a book which takes a long time for a five-fingered guy to, to type up, if you can imagine, especially with ADD and dyslexia. This thing's only good for a space bar. So um read the book if you get a chance. I had a, a Hachette, um, which is like the biggest publication company in the world. Yeah, I had a whole book tour and I had one Barnes & Noble release and then COVID shut down the world the next day. So I spent two years on that stupid book and now it's like, oh, whoa, the worst timing. Absolutely crushed me. I was like, dude, I'm so devastated. Uh, but that's on, uh, you know, Prime and everything else. Uh, get in the game. Um, then we have uh, the Believe in You series at believeinyou.com, uh, which we're a uh, little premature to talk about, but we're going to elevate to the next level. But that's free for you guys. Uh, they based it, they planted it off of a, a portal site now to YouTube. So it's available to everybody. Um, then we have Good Influence. And this project I've been working on for several years as COVID hit. Uh, you know, obviously my my speeches kind of pulled the reins back a little bit on them. And I, I got into this production of this show. Social media is my kryptonite. I don't, I just, I got one giant thumb, man. I'm just terrible with the, the phone thing. Um, so... I, uh, you know, I'm self-aware that social media and self-branding is is not the best for me. Um, I need probably a team to build it out. But, you know, what better can you do than monetize your weakness? So I created this show with a friend of mine who's been in that social media game for a long time behind the scenes. And they've created this spider web, this network, this production company of collaboration through social media uh, stars throughout L.A. So we have the biggest stars on the planet, like it's social media. And the premise of the show uh, that we're about to pitch to everybody in Hollywood. So it hasn't been picked up yet, but watch out for it. Uh, the premise of the show is good influence. So I speak to about 500,000 people a year. Uh, the touch of a button, some of the ones that I'm working with could hit 80 million in a second. So like, how do you use that power for good? So the show is like, you know, I learned a little bit from social media, from the biggest stars, 
Uh, Hannah Stocking, Adam Waheed were in the pilot episode, did a skit that got 156 million views. Um, I did a, a, a skit with Adam that got about 8 million views, uh, which was, was great for me. Uh, but it, it's really interesting to learn insights at kind of how they create their skits. Uh, as social becoming an influencer is the number one growing career path in the world, which is wild. But then the second part of the episode is really like diving into that influencer's heart outside your brand, what you normally post. Like, you know, what are you about? Adam Waheed, who is the, uh, the guest star in the first episode, a uh, big TikTok star, really loves uh, education and thinks every kid should have the right to it. Um, so I found one of the poor schools in the country at a Baton Rouge elementary school. They didn't have a basketball court and like 15 mile radius, et cetera. We, we made them one. So it was like extreme home makeover. We went to the school. I got the keys from the principal on a Friday right after school. And by Monday morning, we had to like deck out the whole school. Well, new teachers, lounge, et cetera. They have this really awesome PE teacher as like these, these burn wounds. Like her husband supposedly left her over it. I mean, she's the sweetest, hardest woman. She works three jobs, a single mother. Uh, wants to go back to school so she can help kids even better, uh, you know, getting her, you know, master's. So uh, we got our grant for that. Uh, we did a game room, et cetera, like a fitness center. And we made this basketball court. So it was a really heartwarming experience for all these kids who otherwise feel like, you know, people don't really care about them. So each episode, it'll dive into kind of a new, a new theme based upon the heart of the influencer, but trying to make love, empathy and kindness trend like use their platforms to make like such a big splash, meaning that instead of destroying your bathrooms on TikTok or whatever trends and stupid skits, uh, instead, like how can you use that reach and that power for good and promote others to do the same? Like, so with that show, we made a phenomenal pilot. I have great partners, uh, especially my editing team. And, and we made a, a phenomenal, phenomenal pilot. I'm not you know able to share with anybody yet or the teaser trailer, but we're, uh, We'll be shopping it within the month and uh, I'll be the host and uh, producer on that. So we'll, we'll see how it goes, but good influence. It's uh, really kind of turning the game on social media. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be really powerful and I hope it's a, a better platform to impact people worldwide. Well, I love that concept for a reason that I've, you know, become aware of myself. So I've got a very you know small and I hate the word following, but you know, community on social media, but what I found, and you remember the, the bottle cap challenge that went around a while ago? People yeah, were, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did a stupid one where I did a spinning kick on a fire hydrant and it opened up. Heck it was yeah. all completely rigged, but it looked cool as hell. <laughs> and that went viral. But so many of the posts I put out where there's actually something truly, you know, going to change someone's life, whether it's, you know, the episodes that we have, whatever it is, it gets a very small response because of the algorithm. So to create a a surge where kindness, compassion, altruism is the cool thing, is the thing that these uh, algorithms are looking for would be amazing. Because sadly, I mean, as you've seen, we got a lot of these stage, hey, I'm going to give a guy five bucks. He's homeless while I film myself the whole time. Truly from the heart, good, good things using these platforms to make the world better and push that message of, you know, of selflessness and community and compassion, I think would be phenomenal. Well, th think about that. Like, even if like one, two, three things trended, like how many people would do something awesome and sense of that and, and think of the ripple effects, like not truly be able to comprehend all the goodness that can come from it. So it's just, it's hard to fathom, but man, that would be a sick platform uh, to really just enhance what I'm doing at a level that makes it a little bit more popular, if that makes, makes sense. But that's the strategy and, and what we have right now. 
insanely uplifting, but insanely entertaining. I mean, we did a really good job and to have a backing of a streaming service or network behind us, <clears throat> real showrunner, line producer. So I'm not making it up as I go. Um, it could be phenomenal. I mean, I'm proud of the pilot we created, but what it could turn into is, is, uh, is something that I think that could make a lot of positive change around the world and open up tremendous doors to, to continue to elevate that. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to make that splash. I'm excited. Brilliant. Well, Kevin, I want to be mindful of your time. I know you've got a hard stop in a moment. So for people listening, um, get in the game. The book you mentioned was on Amazon and, and bookstores as well. Where are other places that people can find you online and social media? Uh, you can go on Instagram. My name is Captain Hook for Life. Uh, it was available. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to be working on my Twitter now that Elon bought it because I have been on forever. Um, and Facebook, not as much either, but just under Kevin Atlas. Um, and then TikTok under Kevin Atlas as well. Um, but yeah, man, I, I need to grow out my social media a little bit better. Uh, you can go to uh, uh, kevinatlas.com uh, or atlasspeakers.com for booking inquiries. Uh, and then obviously you have Get in the Game. You have the long shot, the Kevin Lau story, the documentary based on my life story. And uh, look out for good influence on the horizon because I think that that is going to make some massive change. And uh, I think it will, you know, change the game for sure. Beautiful. Well, Kevin, I want to say thank you. I know we had a slight little microphone glitch going on, but I don't think it really was uh, negative at all. But I just want to thank you so much. My little boy every so often brings me things and sometimes I look at them and I'm like, yeah, okay, that's that's cool. But other times he, he brings me phenomenal humans and I'm so glad that you touched him and that, that he was able to, to make this happen ultimately. But it's been such a unique perspective. You're such a powerful story, but what you're doing now aligns with so many of the great human beings that I love to talk to. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Absolutely. I appreciate you more than you know, man. We're going to have to link up. I was just in Naples not too long ago. I'd love to meet your son. Um, hang out with you guys, man. Really appreciate what you do.